Hey, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I'm Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico. And yeah, it's so good to be with you guys this morning. This is the last Sunday in Advent. So it's the last Sunday before Christmas, which is on next Saturday. And um, we are finishing up our little mini-series, kind of walking through um, the birth narrative of Jesus according to Matthew and um, taking a look at kind of what Matthew wants us to see about who Jesus is, who is this child that was born that we're celebrating. Um, And so as we're doing this, I'm very disoriented because there's like what Matthew says about, you know, Christmas and Jesus, and then there's the reality that we live in. And so like, is, is Christmas a Christian holiday? Is it? What? What makes you think that? What makes you think that? I don't know. Like, if I think back to how, I mean, I celebrated Christmas as a kid, right? But it had little to do with the birth of Jesus other than kind of like a vague allusion to it. And so I'm not so sure anymore if Christmas is a Christian holiday. So I want to bring your, I came for the movies last week, now I'm coming for the songs, so I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But I want to look at one of the songs because it tells a story, and it tells a story that we all believe, and it forms us from our very um, earliest years and shapes how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we see the future, and the song is Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and you guys know this song. And it talks about who Santa Claus is. He's kind of this omniscient, all-seeing, seeing you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Knows if you're, you've done bad or good. He's keeping a list, checking it twice. Knows if you're naughty or nice. And what the, the song kind of culminates in this hope that he is coming. He's coming to town. And he is judging all the kids. And kind of at least in my early mythology, I think for a lot of people they'll share this, like it was basically understood that you're going to get coal if you're bad and that you'll get presents kind of ranging in degrees to which you are, like if you're good, you'll, you'll get the very best present that you want. But if you're just kind of good, then you'll kind of get degrees of goodness of presents, like, you know, a generic, normal, neutral year where you weren't too good but weren't too naughty either, you might get like a sweater. And it's like, oh, okay. But no one ever gets coal, do they? No kid ever gets coal. And so the story is, even to, to a kid, right, you have to understand this as a child because that's when we first learned this and kind of got indoctrinated into the worship of Santa Claus and the mythology that we grew up in is that kids know that they do bad things. They know when they've done something that's wrong. But they never get coal. And so export that over years and kind of like very peripheral, like subconscious brain processes about who you are, nature of good and evil, all of this thing. And you basically get a population that's like, you know what, I'm basically a good person. Yeah, I've done some bad things, but they're very minor. So minor that I don't get coal. They're not even worth 
talking about. And so you get a bunch of people who think, you know what, I'm pretty good. I'm basically good. And when you're basically good, you don't need the Jesus that Matthew talks about. You don't need that Jesus. And so we're going to talk about how Jesus was rejected this morning. How Jesus was rejected. And we're going to look at Jesus kind of being rejected and identifying himself as a reject. We're going to look at how we reject Jesus. And then we're going to look at how Jesus was rejected for us. And so let's go to the text. It's kind of, um, you might read this and just kind of like, oh, these, these are details that Matthew just put in there to fill some pages. He had a word count he had to meet. And so he just put this in there. But it's actually very rich when you kind of dive into it. So let's go there. It's going to be in Matthew 2, verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the hope that we have in the birth of Christ, in the incarnation that your Son took on human flesh and lived a life for us, died for us. And God, I ask that we would turn our hope, that we would turn our focus during the season while holding on to the incarnation, to the reality that Jesus is returning, that he's coming back, that he has not left the world and forsaken it, but that he is coming back to fully redeem it, to bring a new world of peace, of love, and of hope, of joy. So God, teach us this morning Help us to trust you in the midst of our lives, in the midst of this season, in the midst of disappointment. And Lord, turn us into worshipers. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this story, you remember that Joseph and Mary and Jesus fled into Egypt. And they were just kind of hanging out there because Herod was trying to kill Jesus. And so they were warned by an angel, said, run, go into Egypt. So they're hanging out there. Herod dies, and an angel of the Lord comes back to them in a dream and says, okay, you guys can go back. On the way, though, they learn that Herod's son is kind of continuing his legacy. It's probably not safe to go back to Bethlehem. They were trying to go back to the city of David. That's where they were trying to return to, and instead the angel kind of diverts them and says, no, 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 you have to go to Galilee. So they go to Galilee. Galilee is kind of in the north, and so it's farther away from Jerusalem, from the city center, from the kind of worship center of Israel. And so they kind of hug the coastline, stay away from the city center where they might be sought after, 
stay away from Bethlehem, and they head to this kind of outskirts, this wilderness, the North Dakota of the Holy Land. They go to Galilee. And even in Galilee, they go to Nazareth. Nazareth is completely unknown. It's like not on the map at all. You cannot find it mentioned in the Old Testament. So it's really interesting when Matthew says that all of this happened so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. The prophets? The prophets didn't even know that Nazareth existed. So what does he mean? There's a few different kind of options out there, but the only one that actually makes sense fully is taking this idea, Matthew takes this idea of the modern-day understanding of Nazareth. And if you remember the disciple Nathaniel, when he's first called, Philip says, hey, you, you have to see this guy who is the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes to Philip and he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, nothing good can come out of there. Now, and it's interesting because Nathaniel's also from Galilee, but he's kind of from like a little bit of a bigger city that's a little closer to Jerusalem. And so even, even Nathaniel is not really anything, and his city isn't really anything and he looks down on Nazareth. And so Nazareth was a place of kind of humiliation. It was a place for outcasts. It was a place that would be really looked down upon. So for us to understand Jesus going to Nazareth, being from Nazareth as a fulfillment of Scripture, we have to understand that he's identifying himself with the lowliest people. He's identifying himself with the outcasts, with the forgotten, with the people that you look at and read their resume and are very unimpressive. He's identifying himself with them. He's doing that also, if you think about it, he's living his adolescence in this town, and his family is going to Jerusalem. And so Jesus, the one who we're celebrating, goes to Jerusalem just about every year, and he gets looked down upon by everyone there. Oh, you're from Nazareth? Back of the line. You can go hang out on the outskirts with the Gentiles, because you're nothing. You're not important to the promises of God. We know that what's important is from Jerusalem. What's important is from the city of David. But you're in Nazareth. You're in Nazarene. So he, as a teenager, is dealing with this scorn. He's wearing this shame, and it is kind of attaching to his human identity. This isn't just kind of like a very um, like arbitrary rejection that he's facing. This would have been socially real for him. He knows what it would have been like to be looked down upon. And this is now how we get to kind of understanding what it means that this is fulfilling prophecy. So let's go back to Isaiah 53, and this is going to be one of the um, really important passages in understanding who the Messiah is. And it's in Isaiah, and this is describing the servant. It's the, the servant who is a king, who's the anointed one. And so in Isaiah, Isaiah is describing what this servant is like. In Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, it describes him like this. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So I think that it's fairly clear this is the prophecy, this is the prophetic category that Matthew is referencing here. He's saying being from Nazareth kind of established and foreshadowed what would become typical of Jesus' life, and that was rejection. In his ministry, he was constantly kind of attracting a crowd of people who would then leave him. He was left by all his disciples. His closest friends rejected him ultimately. So you see this kind of counterintuitive arrival of the Messiah. He's not who anyone expected. He's a shoot, but he's a shoot from dry ground. You're not looking for a shoot to come up out of dry ground. He's from Nazareth. And this rejection is, ultimately, it's a, it's a way that we, as people, we choose the ways of man. We choose what seems obvious, what seems rational, what seems doable, what seems controllable over the ways of God, over what God has promised, over what he has foretold. Because right there, the Messiah will be like this. He will be one despised. He's going to look a lot more like Samuel than he will like Saul. If you remember, Saul was the king that Israel wanted because he was big and strong. He had earthly wisdom. And in a lot of ways, he was a good king, but he trusted in his own strength, in his own planning, and he didn't trust the Lord. Whereas Samuel was kind of despised. He was the prophet who would speak truth that nobody wanted to hear. He would try and get people to depend on God instead of their own strength. So Jesus fulfills this category of the Messiah being one who would be rejected. But we have to now enter into our own present day and our own present time and understand that Jesus wasn't just rejected by the people that he lived with in Nazareth. He wasn't just rejected by the people who crucified him. He wasn't just rejected by the Pharisees and the scribes. But Jesus continues to be rejected and that we have rejected Jesus, all of us. Jesus was rejected by you. We, ter- we participate in this rejecting Jesus whenever we are choosing our own way, the way that is controllable to us, the way that we can make sense of, the way that is obvious and rational versus counterintuitive and trusting. We want that immediate correlation and correspondence of like cause and effect. But with Jesus, when we look at the way of Jesus that we reject, our minds are blown. We, we, aren't, we don't have the ability to instantly see cause and effect. We're left 
kind of hoping and trusting. It's a very vulnerable place. We don't like to be there. And so we reject it. This is ultimately coming to rejecting the way of the cross. And so we, our own like human ability to reason and to think, we come up to the point just like the rest of the disciples. We're like, okay, Jesus, you make sense. We, we kind of see what you're doing. We see that you're doing some miracles, like you're doing some good things. And then the cross comes. Oh, but you're dying. And so we pull back. When we see the way of the cross, it doesn't make sense to us. How could the Messiah be on that cross? How could he lay his life down? It's a failure, clearly. Rome has won. The age of the Messiah has not come. This happens in our lives, too. It's not just when we think about Jesus. It's when we suffer any kind of like hardship or unforeseen obstacle in our lives. And we go to God and we're like, hey, what's the deal here, God? Like, I love you. I come to church on Sundays. This wasn't part of the plan. I even stopped doing that sin for you. And so now I'm suffering. That doesn't make sense. God, I love you. I don't want to be stuck in this pattern of sin anymore. And yet, here I am. I thought I was redeemed. I thought I was healed. When we go the way of the cross, when we go the way that Jesus laid down for us by being a reject, by being the king of a rejected people, it puts us in this vulnerable situation of hoping for something. Hoping for something better hoping for something yet to come. And this is where we struggle in that we want the glory that Jesus promises. We want the perfection that he brings. We want the healing. We want the kingdom that he came to establish on this world that doesn't have evil, doesn't have suffering, that perfects us, but we want it now. We want it on our terms. We want the presence on Christmas morning. We don't want any coal. And so we want, just from our very nature, we want everything kind of swept under the rug so that it's almost as if Jesus can just wave a magic wand. That makes the incarnation completely unnecessary. Makes the incarnation completely unnecessary. And that's the question we have to ask is like, okay, we're celebrating God becoming man, taking on flesh. Why did he do that? That doesn't make sense. Why did God who created the heavens and the earth take on a human nature and take on a human nature that was despised. He took on a form that suffered humiliation on a human level. That doesn't make any sense. But it's because the rejection that Jesus has faced 
and that he chose to face. It was for you. So this is bringing us to kind of the whole point of Christmas, the whole point of celebrating the birth of Jesus, is that it's for you. And that's hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to believe because in our minds, here's what would have been a better idea. Hey God, just like sweep those things under the rug and just bring Jesus' second coming right now. Like why, why go through all this? Why send Jesus to take on human flesh, to be weak, to die on a cross? And then why leave us here in this in-between state where Jesus has ascended and we're now waiting? We're still suffering. We're still sinning. But Jesus was rejected for you in this way, friends. He wants you to know what it means to be redeemed. He wants you to see it. He wants you to experience it. He's not just going to sweep things under the rug because we know that doesn't work. We have real guilt. We have real suffering. We have real pain. We have real sin. And if it's not, if we don't see it dealt with, if we don't see a human dealing with all of that, we know that's not redemption. We know that that's an empty promise. It's pie in the sky. We have to see it. We have to experience it. It had to happen. Because Jesus really deals with it. He really deals with the problem of evil, with the problem of sin, with the problem of suffering. And he does it for us. You can keep reading in Isaiah 53. We'll pick it back up in verses 10 through 12 because it kind of explains this. It explains the process of this kind of flow where Jesus lowers himself. He, he takes on a human nature. He becomes the lowliest servant. And then it explains his exaltation. It explains this pathway, this way of redemption. So in verse 10 it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is still talking about the same servant. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to become, to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So you see this movement. This is... This is the way that the rejected servant triumphs and becomes exalted, becomes glorified, and it's through the work of redemption. 
He lays down his life for us. He, his soul makes an offering for our guilt. His soul, his perfect soul takes on punishment for us. And we become his offspring. He sees us presented to him in glory as his reward. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will be satisfied. The anguish of the soul of Jesus is kind of comes to a climax on the cross when he cries out and he's receiving the punishment that is due to sinners. And he cries out. And yet it's that moment where he also is satisfied. His knowledge has made us to be accounted righteous. And this is, this is the call for us as we think about Christmas. And as, as tempting as it is to just kind of go about kind of like the superficial goodness of it, like we think of, oh yeah, cute, like Jesus, you know, born, there's animals there, it's really cute. And we even get all like riled up when like a Anglo-Saxon Jesus and the crush is, you know, tipped over or, you know, people want to remove it. We get all fired up about that. But it's all superficial sentimental. Because what it's not doing is it's not acknowledging this way of the cross that we are in right now, this way of redemption, where we have to actually deal with our sin, bring it to light, see it redeemed, and hope for the return. And that's why we can never just think about one advent. We can never just think about the initial coming of Christ. We have to think about that, but it's not alone. And I want to read you something that is ancient. Um, this is written by Cyril of Jerusalem. And this is how the early church understood Christmas, how they understood Advent. And it's very different from how we understand Christmas here in the U.S., present day. But this is what we need to get back to. This is what we need to remember about the season because it actually has a substance of hope that makes sense to us. This is what he says. He says, We preach not one advent only of Christ, but a second also, far more glorious than the former. For the former gave a view of his patience, but the latter brings with it the crown of a divine kingdom. For all things, for the most part, are twofold in our Lord Jesus Christ, a twofold generation, one of God before the ages and one of a virgin at the close of the ages. His descents are twofold, one, the unobserved, like rain on a fleece, and a second, his open coming, which is to be. In his former advent, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger. In his second, he covers himself with light, as with a garment. In his first coming, he endured the cross, despising the shame. In his second, he comes attended by a host of angels, receiving glory. We rest not then upon his first advent only, but look also for his second. And as at his first coming, we said, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So will we repeat the same at his second coming that when with angels we meet our master, we may worship him and say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. 
This is describing the return of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. And notice how different it is from the coming of Santa Claus. Jesus returns with glory to bring a new heaven and a new earth. Having dealt with all of the sin, putting it to death on the cross that would have earned us punishment, he brings himself to receive his bride. Santa Claus brings toys. No coal, just toys. So we have to, if we want this to be more than just kind of like, oh, this is like a nice thing that we do, makes us feel warm and fuzzy for a couple of nights, but then completely twists our understanding of good and evil. We have to remember that we look forward to the coming of Christ, even as we celebrate how he came as a baby. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, um, that you have given us a real answer. And you have given it to us in a form that we could understand, in a form that relates to us. We thank you so much that, um, that the plan that you have made from all eternity was to send Jesus into a world that would reject him, that would not receive him, would not choose him, but that you have made that rejection redemptive, that you have given us the freedom to see and to receive his work on our behalf. And God, I ask that you would help us to, um, to trust in that way of the cross, in that way of redemption, as we long for Jesus to return and to make perfect everything that he has established. God, help us to not sweep our sin and our suffering under the rug in a superficial, sentimental way. But Lord, help us to cling and long for the return of Christ. Help us to live for it, to anticipate it, to long for it with everything that we have. Lord, we love you. Please help us to worship you here this morning with one voice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.